Welcome back to another episode of the Leading Saints Podcast. If you've enjoyed content on this podcast, it's important that I tell you about the Leading Saints newsletter that we send out every week. This newsletter keeps you up to date on all the current Leading Saints content releases, including podcasts, articles, online events, and even live events that might be happening in your own area. In this newsletter, we also recommend some past episodes and written articles that you don't want to miss. Each week, we include additional leadership perspectives and thoughts that you can only find in the weekly newsletter, so you definitely don't want to miss out. To subscribe to the weekly newsletter, simply text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash subscribe. I'm Rob Hillman. I live in Iowa City, Iowa, originally from eastern Idaho. And one thing I've appreciated about leading saints is the feeling that being a leader, being able to have a connection with the Savior um, is something that we do by being active and sort of anxiously engaged in the gospel. And I sort of feel that as I listen to the podcast, um, listen to the interviews, and I feel a genuine sense that you know, we're all needed at the church through kind of the, the approach that Kurt takes to leading saints. So I really appreciate the, the work he does. Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through various ways, including this very podcast that you're listening to. I hope you subscribe. Maybe leave us a review while you're at it. And I think you'll enjoy the content you find on this podcast. And then jump on over to leadingsaints.org and you'll find thousands of articles dedicated to leadership context as it relates to uh, being a Latter-day Saint. We have virtual summits that we've done. Check us out on social media and also a a weekly newsletter that goes out that has unique content you won't find anywhere else. So uh, jump into the Leading Saints world. We're glad to have you. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the declaration was made concerning the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability. I'm here with Mike Hotelling. How are you, Mike? I'm great. I'm glad and terrified to be here. <laughs> now, tell set the scene here. Like this is a an atypical uh, setting for the podcast I usually record. Where are we at, and, and what are we doing here? We are just outside of Wan Ship, Utah, at Big Canyon Ranch at a men's Warrior Heart Boot Camp Retreat, and this is the most beautiful place in the world. And we're surrounded by 12 of the most beautiful men in the world. <laughs> That's right. We have a, a live studio audience. Everybody make noise and say hi. Right. Wow, that sounded like almost 24 men. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> so yeah, we've, we've promoted these, uh, these boot camps on the, the podcast. And many, many men are here because of some of those podcasts, the, the promotions we've done. And uh, yeah, what, what would you say, Mike? You, you're, you're currently serving as a bishop, Latter-day Saint. Here you are. Uh, what... Why am, should people check this out? I wish I could bring my entire YSA ward here, male to the boot camps and yeah. females to the heart of a woman. Yeah. Uh, this is the real deal. It doesn't substitute for anything that we already believe in the church. It doesn't conflict with anything. It uh, helps me, helped me and helps us to see another side of God that maybe we didn't learn growing up and maybe we weren't taught exactly this way in the church. Yeah, there's, there's, there's beauty in sort of stepping back and maybe taking a different perspective, right? We That's right. I speak I speak Spanish and there's nothing wrong with being bilingual spiritually as well. Mm. And so like being that. able to see God in this way, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. It's, for sure. It's helpful. So if if people are listening want to check it out, uh, I've done a few episodes on it. There the one that comes to mind is if you search on leadingsaints.org for title is is Elders Quorum working and we interview uh, Steve Shields, James, a lot of the the presenters here and people who are involved and, and they can give you a better idea. And you Some of the to, boot camp heroes. That's right. And then go to awarriorheart.com to get all the details and uh, hopefully we'll see him at a future one. Don't delay. The uh, next one I think is in November 2021. Don't yep. 
miss the opportunity. That's right. That's right. Well, I wanted to, uh, while you're up here, you're originally, you live in Georgia. You're not originally from there, but you live in Georgia. Yeah, we've been in Georgia a little over 30 years, south, just south of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Uh, was an, I was born in Utah, raised in Seattle, Washington. And uh, we, my wife and I, after we married, moved to uh, live five years in Seattle. And then we've been in Atlanta for over 30 years, raised our family there. Nice. And you're currently serving as uh, YSA bishop. Yeah, right? bishop. Tell us, tell us uh, about the area, like that sort of thing. Yeah, we do not have a college or university that brings kids to us. Rather, we're like a local ward that we serve two stakes, two family stakes. And and so our kids come. We have more in the summer than we do in the wintertime. And we'll have 70 or 80 kids attend every Sunday in the summertime. And uh, it drops off a little in the fall as they're going off back to school. And then it picks back up in the in the summer. That's cool. So it's a beautiful area, super green. Uh, Georgia is a very, very pretty state. So you cover two stakes, but you are you're under the direction of one of those stake presidents. Right? Correct. Do you want me to name names of uh, of the stakes? Does it matter? Oh, whatever. Okay. Right. Yeah. Well, we're, I'm the Fayetteville, Georgia YSA ward. We're in the Fayetteville, Georgia stake, but we cover also most of the Noonan, Georgia stake, which was just created uh, less than a year ago. Yeah. So we've gotten to know each other, just the various boot camps we've been at together. And uh, I've learned a little bit about your story, not completely, but we got to drive up here. And I heard uh, you reached out to me the last few weeks or whatnot and, and shared with me that you'd recently been called as, as a bishop. And and I know you have uh, an interesting past, maybe. Maybe, a, a, I don't know if I would say it atypical or, or different, but uh, you know, we're all we're all on a journey of, of redemption and sinning and, and you know, turning towards Christ. But Sometimes we stigmatize some of those paths. Sometimes we think, yeah, Christ, you know, he heals all and forgiveness is real, but maybe certain people shouldn't end up in uh, high profile, you know, influential callings. But I, I really want to tear that stigma down because I've met so many people who I thought, you know, even people who've lost their membership or their membership been removed and they've come back and I think, man, nobody better would be a bishop than, you know, I could list uh, the names of men like that. And, uh, a lot of times that's not uh, that's not an option, or it, it isn't. We don't let it be an option. So let's go back to the beginning of your story. Uh, where where does it begin? What's what was the moment? Well, I would remind the listeners that uh, you should never trust a skinny cook, and uh, <laughs> so I would never trust a a too holy bishop. That's uh, that's what I'll say. <laughs> None of what I say is a is about blame. Um, I'm going to talk about my parents a little bit and how that created some wounds in me growing up and what that did to me and how I reacted. And they're still alive. And this is not to blame them. They were good people that did the best they could, but it wasn't enough. And that's probably God's plan is that we have imperfect people around us so that we will seek him and, and not seek them. But as I identify my wounds, it's, it's not to blame anybody. It's just so that I could identify them, examine them, and actually have more love and compassion for them than I did in the midst of my afflictions, if you will. Yeah, you know that I appreciate you mentioning that because it's you know there are there are some tragedies out there. There are some abusive parents, some people that really made some spiritual wounds. That I mean, nobody would get out of some of those relationships without spiritual wounds. A lot of times, it's the wounds of mortality. People doing the with their best intentions, help trying to help somebody, and they end up you know maybe taking pushing someone the, the direction they didn't mean to push them. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's got problems, and we inflict those on everybody around us. And, and the job is, is uh, not to blame anybody, but to understand them. And only then can we process them, I think, and move forward. So as a young kid, uh, we, I was born in Provo, Utah. We moved to Seattle when I was about six years old. There was a lot of stress and confusion and chaos in our home. A lot going on between mom and dad. Dad, in, in the mid-60s, like 1965 or so, he was a 100,000-miler for United Airlines which today's nothing, but that was a big deal in the mid-60s. He traveled a lot. He was gone a lot. And and so he was absent. So mom raised six kids. And I think that in dad's absence, mom tried to create strong emotional bonds to get support from us kids. There was no sexual abuse or, or beatings or anything like that. But I think there was an emotional incest is the way that I describe it. Yeah. And that's a, I mean, that's a clinical term is, it? I mean, a therapist will use that. Term? I've, I've read one book about it. Nobody's, nobody's told me that or diagnosed yeah. me with it. That's my self-diagnosis. And it's sort of a shocking term, but basically mean that your mother was turning to you for that emotional support, support that, that she because, needed and yeah. didn't get in, yeah. in the, in the relationship there. Yeah. yeah. 
So from the outside, six kids, we were good looking and smart and talented and and we were pretty normal or or maybe normal plus from the outside. But at home there was a lot of turmoil and um there's there was there was, there was a lot going a, on. I mean from the outside looking in, pretty traditional latter day. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Church every Sunday, everybody doing what they're supposed to do for the most part. Yeah. Nobody went to jail. So <laughs> Yeah, anyway. But internally, I didn't know how to handle these emotional difficulties and these triggers. It was hard. And so at a, at a very young age, I uh, began to isolate, feel shame over not being proud of who I was and who they were and stuff. And about 10 years old, a friend showed me a Playboy magazine. Hmm. It was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. For me, it was like snorting cocaine. Instantly, I was hooked. I knew that I'd do whatever it took for as long as it took me to continue to get that feeling. I know that not everybody that drinks becomes an alcoholic and not everybody that looks at porn right. uh, becomes a porn addict. But for me, it was instant. I, at t- I'm 10 years old. I'm a Cub Scout, you know? Yeah. And um, I have no idea what's happening to me. Yeah. So <laughs> I used to visit a friend and we'd ride through the woods and under a log was hidden a Tide box. And I've, I discovered there was a stash of Playboy magazines. You didn't there. know whose it was? It was just there? Yeah, it was just there. <laughs> wow. uh, he found it, showed me. and. And so I'd visit the Tide Box often, and my shame got deeper and deeper, mm. and it increased. And and then doing the addiction became a way to escape the shame. So I don't know, you know, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Is it shame or or the addiction? But boy, they they cohabitate and they yeah. they really promote each other. And talk talk me through that that initial shame, like because you were hearing. Were you hearing messages at church like you shouldn't look at these things, but you were drawn to it? Like it wasn't that. Oh, absolutely! Yeah. It was. It was forbidden. It was the wrong thing to do. It, I I was confused because I had friends and I used to babysit for some leaders, and I would see Playboy magazines in in their home, and I was confused about some of this, but I knew that it was wrong that I wasn't supposed to be doing it. Yeah, yeah, and it's more of the uh, that you knew it was wrong, but you wanted it so bad. Absolutely. Right? Oh, and that's yeah. That's where the shame just. Oh yeah, I was I was out of control again. I started at ten years old. There was I didn't know what to do. I, was, I could not regulate my emotions or my desires at that point. Yeah, wow. So that continued, and I remember about fourteen years old. I was reading a TV guide. You remember those? Yeah. I remember I'm born in 1958, so <laughs> it's early seventies. I'm about fourteen. I'm reading a TV guide about some rock star, and he's describing his heroin addiction, the addiction cycle, the guilt, the craving, the you know. And the acting out, and I realized by reading his heroin story, I am addicted to pornography, and that word had never been put to it to me. And I should say, since I'm 14, my being ordained a deacon was delayed to give me time to repent. My being, I was open with my bishops. Mm. Being ordained a teacher, a priest, even an elder, was delayed in order to give me. Was it hard for you the first time to to open up and, and share that with your bishop, or did you share it with your parents? Or I didn't talk about. I got caught by my parents a time or two over the years, but I didn't share it with them. No, mm-hmm. but I was pretty open with my bishop. I wanted help, and I didn't know what the source was. And of course, good bishops, all they could say at the time was, "Oh, well, just stop doing that, and then your depression will go away. Oh, just stop doing that, and you'll feel mm-hmm. better about yourself. Oh, just stop doing that." Like well, as if the porn was duh. the source. Uh, exactly. Yeah, like yeah. porn was the source. Like that was the problem. And of course, that's one of the things I've come to learn is porn's not the issue. Porn's right. a symptom. You it know? may like it stimulate that addiction cycle to keep going. Right, right. right. But so I thought, well, duh, Bishop, I've, I never thought of not doing that anymore, you know. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> every day. Right? Gee, what a good idea. That's a novel idea. <laughs> yeah. So, and this is back in the in the early uh, 60s. Yeah. Yeah. So late 60s, early 70s. Yeah, I mean, I bet most bishops just, I mean, there's nothing, no perspective. I mean, people weren't openly no, talking about no, this No, there's stuff, no right? discussion. The idea right. of, quote, addiction, it was just uh, it was just weakness. It was just bad habits. It was just, uh, you know, uh, compulsive behavior maybe, but there was yeah. no real discussion of addiction in conference or in church meetings yeah. or anything like and that. And again, going back to the best intentions, your bishop oh, yeah, said oh, those yeah. things. Oh, yeah. Good yeah, people, I mean, great people, and I love right. them. And they, they, they give the best guidance they had, mm-hmm. but it wasn't good enough. Yeah. So, so even my mission. That, yeah, so you get up to your mission. Everything gets pushed back. Everything's you know, being delayed. Even my things. mission call, I screwed up again shortly after I had my mission call and before I was supposed to report. Went and talked to the bishop. He called the stake president. They called Salt Lake. Well, if he can just hang on until he reports to the MTC, we'll still let him go. And so I go on my mission. And, and where'd you go? Argentina. Okay. Cordoba, Argentina. Hermosa tierra argentina, vivillon tu suelo. <laughs> Best mission in the world. Awesome. Had a great mission president, great companions, 
and stayed clean for most of my mission, probably 20 months. Yeah. And then in the end, fail on my mission. And for when me- When you say stay clean, what do you mean with oh, pornography I, I, or masturbation? I, mean, I, I didn't seek pornography. I didn't okay. masturbate yet. And, and so I- But then having that occur again at the end of my mission, then that made my entire mission a failure for me. Hmm. Increase the shame. Increase the- the. Man, you just hear the adversary's message in that, right? Like the rest of the 20 months, flush Doesn't it down count. the toilet, right? Doesn't yeah, wow. Count. Yeah. That's how powerful shame is. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. None of that counted. And part of that's, you know, our LDS culture and our misunderstanding of, you know, all the sins return if we oh, go yeah, back yeah. to our, that's not what that shame. means. But yeah. Yeah. but I didn't know that at the time. Yeah. So I came home. I remember even telling the mission, pre- I mean, I came home on time, but I remember telling the mission president, I'm not even going to ask you for a temple recommend. And I, I told him what I'd done. And, and he said, well, that's up to you. And uh so I come home. My shame's deeper than ever. Mm. And my, you can't even keep it together when you're a missionary, right? Like that's the shame. Right. That's you must really, yeah. really be a bad person. And see, that's the message I'm getting all through these first 20, 21 years of my life is that uh, everybody else is normal. I'm the only one that's suffering these things. If, you know, the classic, if you knew who I was, you couldn't love me. I'm a terrible person. I must be like the Jews that spat on Christ. I'm the whited sepulcher with the, the, the bones inside and the rotting flesh. I stink. I'm horrible. Mm. And, and nobody else is like this. And if they knew who I was, they couldn't love me. Yeah. And I discovered I didn't love myself. I figured I must hate the Savior. I figured he must hate me. Why else would I do this if I wasn't one of those that would have, you know, mocked him and stuff because I felt like I was mocking. Right. Yeah. I mean, man, I shouldn't do this and I know I shouldn't, but I still return to it. It's like it's, I'm slapping him in the face. Right. 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 Uh, it's kind of like uh, Mark Twain said, it's easy to quit smoking. I've done it hundreds of times. <laughs> right. You know, so I'd, I had quit uh, pornography hundreds right. of times. I swore it'd be the last. I even had a, a well-meaning home teacher say, have you ever asked the Lord that if you ever did it again, that he would take your life? Oh, wow. Okay. That was unhelpful. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, Again, and, best intentions somewhere. I right. <laughs> I guess. No, no, absolutely. And again, I, and I never wanted, I never tried or wanted to commit suicide, but there were many times when I did wish I was dead. I just wish I didn't have to deal with it. Yeah. Couldn't do it. So I had bishops tell me, hey, no problem. Once you get married, you can have real sex and uh, pornography won't be an attraction. And then later after marriage, I had a stake president trying to work with us saying that, well, if you had sex every day with Andrea, your wife would, that would solve it, Right. Again, best intentions, but no clue about what's going on. So we got engaged and then my problems surfaced again. You know, I'd gone months and months without, and then my problems surfaced again because it was never solved. Yeah, yeah. Right. And And, and did you discuss it with your wife before you got married? Well, we delayed our marriage. Hmm. So more delays. I called, yep, more delays. Life's on hold. So I called, I was, I was scheduled to go visit her at Thanksgiving. We were supposed to get married in December. I was living out West. She was in North Carolina. And I called on the phone, canceled, you know, it was pre-cell phone. So I couldn't text her the cancellation of our <laughs> wedding. So I called her and said, hey, it's just not going to work. I'll talk to you when I get there. And again, more shame, more embarrassment. And so when I got to her over Thanksgiving, then we sat and talked and I told her everything. Told her everything that I knew about it. She and I agreed with the bishop that, once we got married, it wouldn't be a problem, right? Yeah. Because why would you want pornography if you had real sex? And we had no idea. But so we reset a date and, and delayed a couple of months and got married at uh, the end of February. And, and life was, life was going to be good. I was going to be normal then. Mm-hmm. You're free. I was free. It was, it was over. I came to see my life. And then, of course, that, that wasn't true because pornography has nothing to do with sex. Non-addicts won't understand that. But the best analogy I've come up with over the years is that porn has no more to do with sex than alcoholism has to do with thirst. Mm. An alcoholic does not drink because he's thirsty. He drinks because he has underlying issues. And a porn addict doesn't look at porn because he needs more sex or needs better sex or needs a different kind of sex or needs other sex partners. A porn addict looks at sex for the same reason that an alcoholic drinks, and that's because of unmet needs. I had a counselor tell me 20 years ago before I was ready to hear it that he only knew of two ways, and this illustrates that point, he only knew of two ways to get rid of an addiction. And one was to trade it for another addiction. Hmm. He said, we see that a lot. I don't recommend it. But the other way was to honestly work a 12-step program. And it was through that and that kind of that analogy that, and it's true, 
different addictions have different consequences. Mm-hmm. Addictions are the same, whether it's cutting, porn, anger, gambling, hair pulling, having to be right, porn, it doesn't matter, alcohol, drugs, it doesn't matter what the addiction is. The root cause and the root solution is the same, even though consequences are different sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, how soon after your marriage did you realize maybe you had some slip ups or whatever? Did you think, oh, wow, this didn't go away? You know, I don't remember exactly, but it, it would have only been a couple of months. Yeah. And, and terrible shame, of course, uh, associated with that. I confessed multiple times to my wife through the years. She also caught me a couple of times through the years. I've, you know, left a magazine around or something stupid like mm-hmm. that. And, and she says, I think you wanted to get caught. And maybe I did, but I still wasn't ready to be to be healed. I didn't, I didn't understand the difference between sobriety and recovery. I thought mm. that, you know, sobriety, just not doing it is what I was after. And I didn't realize that there was healing and healing and recovery available to me. I thought all there was, was maybe sobriety. Yeah. And that's really the pitfall, right? It's, especially as a, a church leader, you can get so much in that effort of, well, let's just get the behavior under control. Right. And then, then we'll worry about the healing or, right. or once the behavior is going, like your bishop said earlier, that's the, that's doing the, the hurting. So. Be clean for a month, be clean for three months, and then we'll go. But you've never resolved the wounds and the hurting that was underneath in the mm-hmm. first place. My shame was never addressed. My fears were never addressed. All these years, I'm 62 now, and I'm still just a little boy that wants to be loved. Yeah. I wanted some control. I wanted some love. I wanted, I wanted to be accepted. And porn, any addiction, gives you a certain amount of control, a certain amount, you know, if I'm depressed, I can elevate my mood. If if my if I'm too high, you know high in a mood, I can suppress my mood. You know, addiction does that for you. We do addictions because for a very short period of time they work. And you don't have to look at the the wounding that's happened in your life, the spiritual right. wounding or the hurt. Right. When you can just control that and numb out, right? Whether that's that right. numbing means bringing you up or whether numb, numbing means bringing you down. Right? right. Right. And every time you do it, of course, then you're creating new wounds for yourself. Mm. And you're creating new guilt and new shame, and and it just keeps kind of going. So, and this, I mean, you talked, you mentioned before you recorded the the 38 year journey. I mean, is that? I mean, just sort of this cycle. Whether sometimes it was a really short cycle, maybe other times it was a longer cycle, but nonetheless, the cycle was happening for those 30. It was years. always there. Yeah, yeah, it was always there. If you if you offered me a thousand dollars to abstain for X period of time, I probably would have failed the day before or whatever because deadlines, pressures, you know, those are all artificial things. They have nothing to do with healing and recovery. They only have to do with artificial sobriety. Mm -hmm. And not doing it is not the same as being healed and being in recovery. So at what point did you, and I don't know if this is the next sort of step in your recovery, but when did you turn to the 12 steps? I don't know, at that time, did the church have their formal 12-step program? They had they had just started it about 15, 16 years ago from now. I kind of hit a rock bottom. I was in a community play and I had to kiss this girl on stage and I started kissing her off stage trying to figure out what would be the next step. How do I how do I pursue that? Yeah. And then about the same time, three o'clock in the morning, one morning my wife came down to the basement. You know, we had a two-story house plus a basement, and she made her way down to the basement about three in the morning and caught me on the computer looking at porn. Hmm. And um she said, if I had a baseball bat right now, you'd be dead. Mm. And she made me call my stake president the next morning. We were pretty good friends with him. He was an ex-Marine colonel. And my priesthood leader That's said- a fun guy to call, right? <laughs> yeah. He said, damn you, Mike Hotailing. You're going to ruin a perfectly good family. I'm too mad to talk to you right now. Mm. Click. So that was the love I got from my first priesthood call. <laughs> And then that was a Saturday. And then the next day, Sunday, I went and talked to my bishop. And I. So at this point, what makes this rock bottom? Because your, your wife had caught you before, oh, right? Yes. Yeah, not in the act, but, okay, okay. but she had, yes, but she she'd found seen evidence of yeah. it before. And I had confessed over time to her before. What made it rock bottom is I realized that she said that God woke her up and said, go check on Mike. Hmm. That seemed terribly unfair to me. I mean, it sounds ridiculous to say it that yeah. way. But if God's on her side, how am I ever going to be able to keep doing this? You know, because yeah. <laughs> the whole point is isolation and secrecy. And, you know, they say in AA that you're only as sick as your secrets. And obviously, I would 
act out for a time and then confess to her and a bishop and act out for a time and confess to her and a bishop and that kind of thing. So, but what made this different was I realized in the bottom of my very soul that I couldn't hide anymore, that if God's going to wake her up at three o'clock in the morning, then maybe next time he'll wake her up at four o'clock in the morning or two o'clock in the morning. The gig was up. It was... The gig's over and there's no, there's no hiding anymore. And when you say rock bottom, was it just uh, like, then it was it like, well, then how will I numb out from these feelings? Oh yeah. There's a lot of panic about that. Okay. Now what do I do? That was how I coped. Now how do I cope? What do I do? And, and I was also frightened that I'd come so close to an affair, you know, and, and mm-hmm. I was trying to figure out how does that work? I don't even know how to, how to start all that, you know? Yeah. But I guess I had started it. But. And at this time when you say, you know, how do I cope? I mean, were you aware of some of these, uh, this uh, trauma and w- spiritual wounding and, or that you've had or like? Not really. You didn't know what you were coping from. No, I just figured that I was evil and bad and, and I, I, no, I didn't, I couldn't identify but it. You just knew like, I just need this. I don't exactly know why, right. but- I've tried life not going to this, and That's it doesn't right. work for That's some right. reason, right? And for a short period of time, I can I can stay away from it, but I have to have it. Nah. So the gig's up. You know that this that's not going to be an option anymore. It's going to be a lot more difficult. And so then you're thinking, I don't know why I need it, but I need it. Now I don't know how I'm going to get it. And how am I going to get it? Well, when I go and talk to the bishop, he immediately release, releases me. I was I was the gospel doctrine teacher of our ward, and I was a good teacher. I was a great teacher. And and see, here's the funny part. I knew the whole time I knew the gospel was true, and I knew that the church was the vehicle for bringing the gospel to people with ordinances and covenants and, and correct teachings. But I had come to believe that the gospel was true for you and you and you and you and you. And there's mm. like this big umbrella, I like to say it, where everybody that's protected by the atonement is sitting under the umbrella. But I'm way over there, and I'm so far away, I can't even see the umbrella anymore. So I hope that it would work for my wife. I hope that it would work for my kids. I loved them dearly. I knew it was right. I knew it was true, but I couldn't do anything about it. I couldn't live it. I'd tried. I'd failed. I'd spat on the Savior too many times. And I, so I couldn't do it. Yeah. So, man, how, I mean, <laughs> so here we are at rock bottom. It's like, how long does this last? I mean, when did hope even begin well, to sparkle? That day, the bishop said, there's a new thing in our stake. Would you do one thing for me? And I said, I'll, I'll try something for you, but not for me, but I'm, I can't do it. I don't care anymore. I mean, I care, but I can't do anything about it. I don't care. And he said, well, they've started a 12-step program. It's based on the steps of AA. It's called ARP. They meet Saturday over in the Noonan building at nine o'clock. Would you please just attend one meeting? And what year was this roughly? 15 years ago, 14, oh, okay. 14 uh, 15 years ago. Okay. So do the math. I, I went to a public school. Yeah. Okay. So, so Yeah. <laughs> So about 2000, yeah, six or seven. Okay. And brand new ARP in our stake. So I agreed to go. And, but again, I said, I have no hope. I have no reason to believe it's going to work, but I'll do it for you. So I show up Saturday morning, 10 to nine. Nobody comes, not even the group leader. Like you were at the church building by <laughs> yeah, yourself? Yeah, I'm, I'm at the church building. I'm sitting in the park lot. <laughs> oh, I'm waiting. That's hopeful. That's great. I'm going, well, dang. Okay. I guess it's not really a thing. But I'd, I'd agreed with him that I would go to one. So the next Saturday, I went back, nine o'clock in the morning. It was just me and the group leader. And I don't even remember what step we were on. I, as I recall, it was eight or nine, you know, one of the more difficult steps maybe, but it didn't matter. I felt I'd lived in darkness so long and without hope for so long that the feeling, the best way I can describe it, is though a spider were, were on the ceiling above me and he was just dropping a tiny, tiny, tiny web of hope and it just came down and it touched my leg. And so this tiniest connection to hope, I hadn't felt that in decades. And you knew it couldn't lift you, but it was hope still. You know, it It was was, beginning. It was hope and it touched me. Hmm. And so my heart was stirred. I knew there was something there. And so I began to take seriously ARP, take seriously the 12 steps and do as that counselor had recommended so many years ago, only two ways to get rid of an addiction, either swap it for another or honestly work a 12-step program. So I began to work the program. And it probably took me a total of maybe, gosh, two years to actually achieve sobriety because in that process, I, I wasn't after sobriety. I, I was learning that what I was after was recovery and healing. And I knew it wouldn't be enough to just uh, attend and underline some good things in the ARP book. 
But I began to really dig into 12 steps in recovery. I read the AA big book, the the SA white book, the, you know, I, I read tales, stories of other people who had yeah. been in addiction and got out. And, and I, SA I, is sex, sexual, uh, sexaholics, uh, sexaholics. Yeah. 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 And I got pretty regular with my ARP meetings and began doing the work. And, and I realized there was truth there. Hmm. And, and I felt things that I hadn't felt for many, many years. But like I said, it wasn't instant. And, and that was frustrating. I mean, I'm, in the LDS culture, we, I repented. I'm done. I want to yeah. move on. Yeah. I didn't want to be w- with the other people under the umbrella. I right? That's <laughs> right. I want to go get back in the umbrella. And, and I don't want to stay here in, in trying to repent for very long. And that's what I see in the 12 steps now is a lot of people will come in and they'll dip their toe and then they go, okay, that's good. I got that. I understand that. And then they leave and that's, that's not recovery. It's, it's not necessarily a class. It's really a lifestyle, right? It, shouldn't, it should never be called a class. It should be called a lifestyle. And it's not a 12-week program. It's not something you graduate from. It's a 12-step program. And if you do it right, it'll probably take you years to really work the program. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, uh, during this time, I mean, as you're sort of coming out and discovering this hope, were you receiving professional therapy in these? I mean, because... I had some counseling from LD Social Services. Some of it was very valuable. Some of it was less valuable, but part of that had to do with where I was at. One thing that I did notice during that time was all the attention was paid to me by the counselors and by the bishop. Not enough attention was paid to my wife, who really was the innocent victim in all this. So let's give Mike a blessing. Let's give Mike an interview. Let's see how Mike's doing. And that's one thing I I counsel other leaders now to please pay attention to the spouses and to the children. They are truly the innocents. And in a real way, the victim, excuse me, the addict is also an innocent victim of those wounds, et cetera. But, but we don't pay enough attention, I don't think, to the spouse. So what's the next step? What, you start, the, start doing this, start this doing the years and steps. years? You do the uh, eventually, yeah, uh, I eventually got called as a group leader after I had about a year of sobriety or so. I used to mark my sobriety in days and weeks. Did I tell you that already? Yeah, not on the recording, so okay. go for it. Yeah, yeah, you know, a 24-hour coin like they do in AA and a and a one week and a month, and I, you know, and I was buying myself these coins because we didn't really have that tradition in the ARP world, and and a one year and then a two year coin, and and they were valuable to me, they were important. But after several years, I quit carrying those coins, and all I carry now is a one day at a time coin, mm. because while I was trying to mark my progress, I realized that kind of like stop doing it for thirty days and we'll ordain you a deacon, stop doing it for ninety days and we'll ordain you an elder. I realized that marking time was less helpful than I wanted it to be Mm. and that I was living in the future. Well, when I get a year, I can do this. When I get 10 years, I can do this. And in reality, what I needed was to stay sober today. And I tell you, in those early days, you know, we talk about seeking recovery and healing, but white knuckling and some of those those tools are still important. There were days when I would say, you know what, tomorrow I'm going to look for the best and the greatest porn I've ever seen. Tomorrow I will do that. I will act out tomorrow. I'll start early in the morning and I'll go till late at night and I won't stop until I'm satisfied. But for today, for right now, I'm just going to hang on right now. And so it's not all, you know, puppies and, and rainbows. I'm in recovery and I'm learning new tools and I'm never tempted again. That's not how it was for me. So you have to pick up every tool that you encounter along the way. If you listen to a podcast and some part of it applies, grab that, put that tool in your, you know, that arrow in your quiver. That wasn't helpful to me. That part, well, go great. Don't pick that up. But actually, you probably should pick it up because you may end up using it later. Yeah. So every single tool along the way was helpful, including sometimes you just have to white knuckle through it. That is not a solution, but it's a tool. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because sometimes we sort of dismiss the white knuckling. It's definitely not a long term plan. Correct. Right? It's, Correct. <laughs> it's it's not going to work. Correct. But uh, there are those moments where you think, you know, okay, I'll do that tomorrow, but today I'm not going to do that. Exactly. Yeah. And I literally said that to myself. Yeah, tomorrow, it's a tool, right? Not a strategy. That's right. Yeah. That's right. There were some other strategies I learned along the way. Uh, one fellow teaches face it, replace it, connect, where you, instead of oh, cringing when you see a a billboard that's tempting or something or a magazine article that's a, a picture that's tempting instead of turning away and cringing just face it recognize oh man she's beautiful i'm attracted to that and so you face it and you're not afraid of it it has it, it loses some of its power over you and then you replace it with truth you know what she's not mine it's somebody's daughter it's somebody's wife it's somebody's sister it's god's daughter so I face it instead of running from it. I replace mm. it with truth. 
and then I connect, pick up the phone and call somebody. And we don't have to talk about my temptation. Hey, Kurt, it's killing me. I'm dying. I just say, hey, Kurt, how was your fishing expedition this morning? Just connect with somebody. So that was a tool that I learned that helped me too. Yeah. You know, that connection part, we almost want to just take those first two and say like, okay, I'll do those, but because I can do those on my own and, uh, you know, but to reach out, like that's hard, but man, when you do it, it's just, it's amazing how effective it is, right? It matters. And you don't have to reach out and connect necessarily over the temptation. Mm-hmm. I'm dying here. I just saw, you know, this and that, and, and I can't take it. I, I can and you might, out, right? And but, I might, I yeah, might. Yeah. But what I really need to connect is just with another person. And it takes me out of the place and it, you know. Right. And then, of course, there were tools like avoiding places where I'd been to buy pornography or stolen it from or whatever I'd done. You know, I mean, you just you just can't go there. And so I, I had to change lots of things about me. Yeah. Anything else as far as just the recovery process that brings you up to the point where maybe some leadership roles were starting to come into your life? No, that was kind of it. So now I've been serving in ARP, I attended ARP for a long time, served in ARP for a couple of years as a group leader and slash facilitator. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then was really surprised after a couple of years of sobriety to get a, a phone call from the stake president. And he called me to be a counselor to my bishop in my home ward. Okay. And I would assume being a, a facilitator in the ARP program, he knew that you had some history there. He was the stake president that, uh, the, well, he, he replaced the Marine colonel that damned me for ruining a perfectly <laughs> good family. Yeah. And I love him for that. I do. I do. But he replaced that stake president and he, yeah, he understood everything. And in fact, he's the one that had started the passage pornography assistance excuse me, pornography addiction support group in our stake. Oh, okay. And put me as the first group leader over that instead of just a regular ARP. So so I'd been serving under him for years. He was fully aware of my past and uh, that I had uh, at this point probably three or four years. So, so give us a brief explanation how that worked and how it differed from a traditional ARP program. Traditional ARP group, addiction recovery program group, will handle all addictions, any and all. Uh-huh. Doesn't, doesn't matter what oh, okay. it is. And it's open to males and females too. A PASSAGE, P-A-S-G, Pornography Addiction Support Group, is organized strictly for, in our case, men who suffer from pornography addiction. Okay. The guidelines are, as I understand them, where there's a PASSAGE group, then there's supposed to be a wives support group too. And is this coming from the church's program or is yes, this is just- Yes, okay. it is. All yes, right. it is. And where there's higher, you know, higher density of Mormons, then there are some women's PASSAGE groups too. But in our stake, we had a men's PASSAGE group, okay. men only, and- uh, all porn or sex addicts, and then a women a spouses support group, which my wife continues to lead the women's support group to this day. Oh, cool. And then in conjunction, there's also this the, the general ARP meeting that's, that's right. happening outside of those. That's right. right. In our state, we have two general ARP meetings, one passage for men and one spouse support group. And so if, if a leader wants to know more about how these passage groups work, they can go to the literature in ARP or? Yes. I jokingly tell everybody to go online and search for pornography. And <laughs> and what I mean by that is go to churchofjesuschrist.org and search for pornography. And one of the links there will be in the Provident Living and, and okay. um, as it's organized, and they can find their groups. Awesome. Awesome. So then you're called into a bishopric. Called into a bishopric. And this bishop. is what, early 2010s? Or? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. About that. And, uh, it was kind of funny because the high counselor that called me was new and and I said, uh, who am I going to be serving with? He says, I don't know if I can tell you that or not because we were getting a new bishop. Oh, gotcha. So for three weeks, I had no idea. I said yes, but I had no idea who the new bishop oh, would be. <laughs> <laughs> but a great man uh, who also was already aware of my story. By this time, Andrea and I were starting to talk and be a little more public. We'd, bo- we'd been in ARP, Passage, and the spouse group. Like, were you speaking in church? We were. We were starting to- at Sunday school or- starting to, starting to be asked to speak in like what was then the third hour meetings, uh, fifth Sunday meetings, give a couple of firesides. I did some youth only things, all at the invitation of the bishops or stake president. And so we were beginning to be pretty open about our story. Initially, they would ask me to come and speak and tell my story. And then a smart bishop- like we were talking, said, hey, Andrea has a story too, and I'd like our women to hear it. You think she'd be willing? Oh, I know she would. And so so we began to tell our story. So this was this was, this was getting pretty public. And after serving a couple of years in uh, the bishopric, then we were called for two years to a Spanish branch, hmm. to serve in a Spanish branch. Then I was called- In the to, bishopric or just- uh, Nope. Just, just, I was a young men's president in oh, this okay. Spanish branch, and uh, Andrea served in primary. And- 
from there then, I was called to the high council. And uh, one of my duties in the high council was to oversee the ARP program, which good. It's yeah. my favorite thing. Yeah. ARP meetings are the most honest places that I've ever been anywhere in the church, you know, or out. So high counselor, several years over the ARP program. And then about a year ago, get a call again from the shake president asking me and Andrea to come in. And, and he calls me to be the new bishop of the young single adult ward. Hmm. And so one of the first things we did, and I love these kids, but one of the first things we did was organize it. This is in COVID. This is in June of COVID. Uh-huh. When you were called? Of, of 20 COVID, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so it's called last June, uh, 2020. And, and let me ask, like, during that call and extension of it, was there any talk about, you know, to encourage you to be open about your past or not? or Not specific direction to do that. But this stake president, which is now, you know, two away from the Marine <laughs> This stake president also knew because I was on the high council, so he's my stake president there. And he had facilitated training for me to come and talk to the bishops, for my wife to come and talk to the bishops and encourage me to go to the wards. So nothing explicit about the whole reason I'm calling you is because I want you to share your story with the kids in the YSA ward. But he knew that that would happen. Hmm. And he's super, super supportive, very loving. And he he gets it. He gets addiction. He gets AOP. And all three of them did, really. Yeah. So starting that, I mean, uh, how do you begin to create a dialogue around that? Or, I mean, is a fifth Sunday type of well, lesson? Well, we, just a few days after I was called, then we set a fireside. I wanted to still catch these summer kids before they went off to school. Mm. And so the format was uh, me telling the kids my story. And I put up on the screen a, a picture of a, you know, a crack addict unrecognizable with uh-huh. scars and missing teeth. And and I said, that's what you think of when you think of a crack addict. But and then I put the, this picture of me 10 years old in a Cub Scout uniform. Uh-huh. I said, I want you to know that this is what an addict looks like. And so I told my story. Almost, just, like, just like you've told almost, it almost Almost word for word like I've told it to you. Mm-hmm. This is where I, you know, like they say in AA, what was it like? What happened? What's it like now? And over the years, I would say I've attended many AA and NA meetings. Also, I heartily endorse them. They are wonderful. And AA, Alcohols Anonymous. And Narcotics, Narcotics Anonymous. Anonymous. And, and yep. so you tend them as sort of finding strength. You usually have yourself? a friend there. Yeah, you okay. usually have a friend going there. I'm not like a regular attender and, and drugs and alcohol, thank heavens, mm-hmm. have not been my issue. Yeah. But they are for many people and for, for several friends. And yeah. so I've attended with them. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about, the consequences, right? The addiction is the same. The core problem is the same. And the resolution, the healing is the same. But had I chosen a different addiction, I could be dead now, yeah. you know? Yeah. It, 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 the path, I don't know what right. would have happened. So you do this uh, fireside, and uh, what's the what's the response to it? It was, they loved it. They loved getting to know their bishop better. They loved get, having a bishop they could trust. And what do you mean by that, trust? Well, when I listen to General Conference, every once in a while, somebody will come and talk about how he never heard his father speak an ill word to his, their mother, or, or they never was a raised voice in their house. And I'm going, I don't even know what you're talking about. Yeah. You, you know? just don't relate. To you're it. untouchable. You're unrelatable to me. And my whole point of telling the kids my story, and they, they say it's okay to call my kids, because some of them could be my grandkids age-wise. But, <laughs> so no disrespect to my young single adults, but my kids. So- by telling them my story, it wasn't to call attention to myself or say, you know, hey, I was so bad and now I'm so good. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with, I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid of where you've been. I'm not afraid of what you've done. I love you. More important than that, God loves you. And then I've, I've done it, worked really hard to teach him what I, I would call sort of this boot camp message about how God's love is, you know, we create false gods, a God who judges me and checklists me and punishes me and is just waiting for me to do something wrong. And and it's by grace we're saved after all we can do. Mm. I believe Stephen Robinson's explanation of what that means, after all we can do. So the atonement, God's love, is not a reward for doing something good. It's not the, you know, the cherry on top of the Sunday, as Robinson says. It's everything. It's everything. He's not waiting for me to meet him halfway. It's, he's not waiting for me to do my part. His love is there. And what changes isn't his love for me, as we know, but my ability to respond to yeah. his love, my ability to accept his love. 
What advice would you give to a new bishop who maybe doesn't have that history, but he, he wants to gain the same level of trust that uh, maybe you've been able to gain? How, how would you coach them through creating that same dynamic? I would hope that their uh, ward or stake have, uh, has an ARP group. I would invite them to attend. I would invite, you know, when you look, go to an ARP group and you go, oh, there's six people here, you're going, oh, this is good. We've got the only six people in the entire stake that have a <laughs> pornography problem all together. I'm glad everybody else is safe, you know? <laughs> right. So that's not true. But as a bishop, they will have access to people with addictions. Take them to an ARP meeting. Attend an AA meeting with them. And when you go, t- lose the tie. And and just be curt. Don't be Bishop Frankum. Yeah. Just just go and, and try to understand. Like I did early in my recovery, I read 20 books about or by people who were addicted or about addictions. And you'll begin to understand and see the patterns. You don't have to live it to understand it, I don't think. But you do have to try. You do have to want to understand. Yeah. I think just like taking the steps of at least trying to engage in that dialogue, whether it's uh, even if you mess up, it's like, you know what? All right. That didn't go well. I'm going to try again and we'll regroup here and and try again and and invite maybe a speaker to come. Or Have you ever had a friend with a parent or a spouse or something pass away? Yeah. And you say something stupid, oh, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, and then you go, oh, I didn't say that right. Well, I'll never say anything ever again to somebody who has a loved one pass away. No, that's not the way you do it. You just keep trying and you keep showing them that you're present, that you're there, that you care and that whatever it is, we can work through this. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, and then just the, I mean, the response, did you feel like your schedule filled up as, as a bishop or? Uh, some. Yeah. Some. Uh, there's there's still some people out there that think that I'm not talking to them or about them or or that God's help isn't available for them. Uh, still a lot of fear around opening up and being honest. Um, but yes, yes. Yeah. I've had a great, and, and I've had, again, it's not about me, it's, it, but I've had a couple of people say, I sure am glad you're my bishop. I sure I'm glad you get this. I'm glad you've walked this path and recognized some of the some of the yeah. stones along the way. And I'm glad you say that. You know, it's not about me because it, it'd probably be really easy to make it about you because it's your story. You know, but it's more of like articulating in the frame of this is my inter this is my interaction with the divine or with with Christ, and this is what He did for me. And why don't you come to my office? He will do it for you. Yeah, exactly. For this you. was my interaction. This is how he changed my heart. Yeah. This is how he helped me heal and recover. And through healing and recovery, I eventually achieved sobriety over 14 years now. Mm-hmm. But I don't carry a 14-year coin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he will change your heart too. Yeah. You are not beyond his help. Yeah. You are not beyond his reach. Yeah, that's awesome. Does anything scare you like being a bishop with, with your story? I mean, do you... Do you st- Second guess yourself or do you you worry about relapse? I mean, any of that? I literally still live one day at a time. Yeah. I feel like Alma, where he said that he could remember the pain of his sins no more. I still remember my sins, but the pain part is gone. And you remember when the the Lamanites were pounding on the Nephites and God made the Nephites burdens light, Mm, but he did not remove them. So I understand that I could fall again tomorrow. I understand that. I don't fear that because um, I have a lot of tools to help me cope with it now. My biggest fear as a bishop is blowing it with these kids. But see, that's pride-based too because it's not about me. It's about the Savior. And so if I can just keep pointing them that way, just keep pointing them that way. That's the whole purpose of sharing. You know, I heard this thing. It's not helpful to share to compare wounds most of the time, it sometimes is helpful to share wounds. So not comparing them, but sharing them sometimes. And for them to know that, you know, it can, there's a place to go. There's a place to find healing. Yeah. So true. What would you say to maybe some stake presence listening that, uh, well, let let me back up. And I remember as a bishop, I'd have this, uh, this exercise I went through, I'd call it the dark horse candidate where maybe we were as a bishopric, we were together trying to think of names or individuals to call to different positions. And sometimes they were, you know, suggesting a name as an elder quorum president, the state president or whatever. Right. And I'd often turn to my bishop and say, okay, I need a dark horse candidate. Like who is just, that's crazy idea. Right. Cause I think there's this principle of like, you sort of have to like push against revelation in order for it to push back. So I'm going to say, I'm, I'm going to, what do you think about this God? You know, what about, is, is this crazy enough? And sometimes you would come back and be like, I'm glad you asked because I know you wouldn't have picked that person, but 
I think that's a good idea. And then I really some, like that, Kurt. Some I, beautiful I, things happen. So, what would you say to state presidents who maybe leave some of these individuals off the list because they have that history? Well, I really like the way you phrase that because God's going to respond to what you take to God. It's rare that he says, thou shalt call this man or yep. this woman, yep. but he's going to respond to the candidates that you provide to him uh, normally. So I would say to the stake president, take a chance. It's funny. You think that you know the history of him and him and him, and you're disqualifying them because you think you know your history. Well, him and him and him and him over there maybe haven't just fully disclosed all of their history yet. Right, right. And I would always take the honest guy who's come <laughs> right. out and talked about it over the guy that has not been able to confront it himself because yeah. there's more out there than we know. Yeah. And that's a breaks my I know that there are probably bishops out there, relief site presidents, individuals who are struggling with shame filled, you know, transgressions that they don't know what to do with. And so they sort of put on that pose or that facade as they just say, well, I'm just going to carry on and maybe I'm going to keep trying. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to keep trying. And that's not an evil intent. Right. It's just that we don't know another way to carry on. I told you about my quilt idea that, that mm -hmm. I lived my life as, with all these beautiful squares to my quilt, but there was just this one inky, black, tarry, filthy square on my quilt. And as long as I kept it in the shadows, then I could live in this big, beautiful, bright colored, wonderful quilt. And then when I hit rock bottom, then somebody put my quilt in the washer and all that ink and tar yeah. contaminated the whole thing. And the Savior gave me a new quilt. Yeah. And a few thoughts come to mind. Just the exercise of like, you know, yeah, maybe maybe you don't want to roll the dice on this individual because you're not sure about his history. Then well, call him up, take him out to lunch and sit down and say, tell me the story. Tell I want me your to hear story. It, right? Yeah, it's and, important. And, I mean, just sitting here talking with you and hearing you is like, I have no worry with, you know... <laughs> Bishop Hoteling, uh, you know, running the show here. And, and like you said, it, all of us could fall, right? It can happen. But yeah. what a great experience. And then the trust you're able to build, how you leverage some of that history and the redemption you've you've shared. So that's awesome. That's great. And uh, and just the idea of recognizing these individuals who may have a history, but have overcome it to some extent through the grace of Jesus Christ. Like they're practiced in being open and saying like, maybe they'll be more likely to call up the stake bread and say, you know what, this week's a tough week. I've have this history and I'm a little more uh, vulnerable right now. Can I connect with you? Or I'm, I want, you know, I'm connecting with others or things like that. Right. Well, you know, the thing about a porn addiction too, is that we directly associate it with a sex addiction. So we assume if we assume if a person has looked at a playboy, then he's also had affairs or something like yeah, that. Yeah. You know, we go that way. Well, the person that cuts, are you going to keep them from holding a calling? The person that pulls their hair out, are you going to keep them from holding a calling? The person that um, has an anger issue that always has to be right. That, that gambles, is that completely disqualifying them from serving anywhere? Mm -hmm. And so porn addiction isn't about sex. There's lots of good people who have a lot to offer that are struggling and are overcoming. Yeah. Yeah. Try them. All right. I'm turning to my studio audience. Any questions I've missed or th things I should ask or do we cover it? Do you still work the 12 step? I do. And um, I've been to 12-step meetings with some of my people. I don't attend weekly, uh, but especially steps 10, 11, and 12, kind of the maintenance steps. I bought a couple of hundred one-day-at-a-time coins. And at that fireside, and at the one we have the end of this month, the end of May, mm -hmm. I will give a one-day-at-a-time coin to every single one of my ward members. That's cool. Telling them again the story and reminding them, you only live the gospel one day at a time. You can only stay sober one day at a time. You can only stay clean one day at a time. Everything that is important to do in life can only be done one day at a time. You cannot relitigate the past. You cannot predict or, or, or yes, we set goals, but you can't live in the future. You can only succeed today with God's help yeah. today, one day at a time. And I love that, you know, going back to your umbrella analogy that you saw it as an umbrella for everybody else, but then you discovered the umbrella was over you the whole time. And now you're extending that addiction or that brokenness umbrella to everybody because we all need the savior. We exactly. all need to be under his umbrella. So here's your coin. That's right? the whole thing. That's right. And so remember this. Yeah. And every yeah. time I get in my pocket, it rattles and I remember what I'm trying to do and why and what the source of the power is. So, so where do you get one day coin coins? Oh, well, uh, from recovery-world.com. Nice. And you order them in bulk then. <laughs> I, do, I get them about a hundred at a time. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. That's great. Any other questions I missed? Here, come up here and talk to the mic. What? You can tell who you are and where you're from, but you don't have to. Uh, Sean from Lehigh. Hi, Sean. Uh, quick question. What would you 
say or advice would you give to friends, family, ward members of those who are in the circle of a recovering addict? Oh, that is a great question. And really the bottom line is to love them and to continue to point them towards the Savior. I realized as an addict that I was talking to my wife about somebody was bugging me you know, is it in my addiction. Somebody was bugging me in the ward one day and I said, I just, I don't understand why are they like that and blah, blah, blah. And she says, you know what your problem is? She says, you don't love anybody because you don't love yourself. And I realized that that was eventually, not, not immediately, but realized that that was the key. And so as I began to allow God's love to come to me, this is the order it happened for me, then I was able to eventually feel love back for God. And then the most incredible thing happened that I never thought would. I began to love myself, but only in that order. I could never love myself until I loved God back, and I could never love Him until I accepted His love for me. And then after I began to love myself, then I was able to begin to love God's other children. And so the answer to those that are in the circle of living, family and friend circle of those that are in addiction, is to continue loving them, to continue showing grace for them to continue to accept them, to continue to connect with them. They do not need to be isolated. They don't need to be told it's wrong. They get that. They don't need to be rejected. They need to be embraced, loved, accepted, held. Yeah. Any other questions? You mentioned that uh, you, that bishops and uh, you know, the leadership shouldn't forget about the victims, the true victims. What would you recommend, what suggestions would you recommend to really help those victims? Well, and by victims, I'm talking about the spouse of the addict, right? And And remember that I believe that the addict himself or herself is a victim, okay? But when we're talking about the spouse of the porn addict or the sex addict specifically, it starts with interviewing them, offering them blessings, checking in with them, making sure the Relief Society president's aware that they, I see you. I see you. Instead of, I'm going to work on him, and I hope you're okay too. It just gets forgotten, not that they're intentionally being ignored, but they are being ignored, that, that spouse. So it starts with frequent, if you're seeing the addict once a week, initially, you should be seeing the spouse once a week, and you should talk to them separately and find out where they're at and where their heart is and what their feelings are. And uh, there should be a lot of dialogue between yeah. the priesthood leader and the spouse. And I, I remember from my experience as a bishop, like that, just how important that relationship was that I remember a few instances where I thought, okay, I need to reach out to the wife. But the wife was like, you know, going through all this betrayal trauma. I was like, okay, because of you, husband, now I have to go talk with the bishop. I don't even know him. It's so awkward. The last thing I want to do is walk in that office. And so I would feel like they would sort of be like, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. Right. So Sometimes it's a long haul. You sort of have to keep connecting and encouraging and building a relationship there. Hopefully you have it. You're already doing that. So when these things blow up, that those right. relationships. Some of these things come up yeah. as surprises and maybe the bishop hasn't established a relationship with either yeah. one, right. a deep relationship yet. The other thing is for the bishop or stake president to offer counseling services. Yeah, right. Therapy's uh, huge and all this. Yep. Yeah. It matters. It yeah. matters. 12 steps, therapy. And someone who's not just any therapist, but, you know, really get someone who's maybe has some experience with this type of situation. Betrayal trauma, you mentioned that phrase, is a real thing. It's real. And just like addiction is real. And so, yeah, yeah we, need to, we need to be more aware of that, I believe. Nice. All right. Well, I got one more question for you. Mike, just reflecting back, you know, in your, in your experience as a leader, you know, obviously more formal leadership, but your experience being a leader in this addiction recovery world. How has being a leader helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? Oh, that's important because as I've come to learn who he really is and not who I thought he and the father were, you know, Kurt, I'm not sure if that's the order. I'm not sure if being a leader helped me be a better follower. I think that learning to be a true follower of him is what has helped me to be. If I have any skills as a leader, I think that's what's helped me to be a good leader understanding who he is. You know, Joseph Smith said, we have to know the true nature of God in order to have faith in him. And most of my life, I didn't understand who God was. I had a false God placed up there. And that's who I thought I worshiped and who was going to punish me and who was after me. But entering recovery, finding healing has allowed me to be a better follower 
And that has allowed me, just sharing that testimony of who God is and who the Savior is, has allowed me to be, for 11 months, a decent leader, I think. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. We'd love to hear from you about your questions or thoughts or comments. You can either leave a comment on the uh, post related to this episode at leadingsaints.org or go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and send us your perspective or questions. If there's other episodes or topics you'd like to hear on the Leading Saints podcast, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and share with us the information there. And we would love for you to share this with any individual you think this would apply to, especially maybe individuals in your ward council or other leaders that you may know who would really appreciate the perspectives that we discussed. And I remind you once again to text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to subscribe to the Leading Saints weekly newsletter.